Hello everyone and welcome back to the World of Sharks podcast, the official podcast of the Save Our Seas Foundation, where we discuss pretty much everything relating to sharks, rays and their underwater habitat. I'm your host Isla and every episode I am lucky enough to sit down with scientists, educators and storytellers to take you on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. This week we aren't so much looking at the sharks themselves but at the place that they call home and more specifically we're examining our relationship with the ocean and in general the wider natural world. It actually feels like a lifetime ago now, but just under three years ago, we were all experiencing something new and to be honest, pretty frightening. The global pandemic kept us inside. It stopped us from seeing our friends and our families. And I think at that time, a lot of us found solace in nature, or we just realized how much we needed it and how much we missed it. And once those restrictions lifted, I know a lot of us, myself included, re-evaluated our relationship with the natural world and in particular, the sea. Now, in the same year that we were all stuck indoors, a Netflix documentary about a man's emotional and spiritual connection to the underwater world emerged into the global conscious. You might have heard of it. It's a a little film called My Octopus Teacher. (laughs) But the film really seemed to capture something that a lot of us were feeling or even missing at that time. And it didn't try to beat us around the head with statistics of how dire the planet's situation was or even sensationalize animal behavior. Instead, it told the story of Craig Foster and in particular, the deeper meaning that he found in being immersed in the underwater world and the special connection that he had with one of its most charismatic creatures, an octopus. The film went on to be critically acclaimed, loved across the world, and it won many, many, many awards, including an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. And my guest today is one of the directors on that film. Award-winning filmmaker and conservation journalist Pippa Ehrlich directed My Octopus Teacher along with James Reed. Pippa has long been interested in documenting human connection with nature and has spent a lot of time examining her own relationship with the ocean. Pippa started out as an investigative journalist in her home country of South Africa, but soon realised that her passion was in telling stories about the conservation and beauty of the natural world and our relationship with it. After a brief stint in the corporate world, she was appointed conservation journalist for the Save Our Seas Foundation, where she told the stories of scientists and project leaders supported by the foundation. Inspired by the passion of those scientists and her own love for sharks and the ocean, Pippa's approach to storytelling began to balance traditional reporting with creativity and emotion, which is something that she's carried forwards into her career as a filmmaker and something that you can really see shine through in My Octopus Teacher and later, Older Than Trees. This year, the Save Our Seas Foundation are celebrating our 20th anniversary. And as part of that, we wanted to create a film that showcased the animals that we are dedicated to saving, sharks and rays, and the work of the foundation. Older Than Trees is a short film directed by Pippa. 
the title of which refers to the fact that some form of shark existed before trees even became a thing, one of my favourite shark facts. It's a film that I've been lucky enough to watch twice now, and I don't want to give away too much, but what I will say is that it made me cry both times. So Pippa just has this magical way of telling people stories that really, really connects to you on a deeper level as a viewer. For our 20th anniversary, we are showing screenings of the film in a few places around the world, and one took place in Cape Town in May that I was incredibly fortunate to be able to go to. And while I was there, I got to sit down with Pippa at her beautiful home and have the conversation that you're about to hear now. We talk about her journey to becoming a filmmaker, why My Octopus Teacher resonated with so many people and her approach to filmmaking and storytelling. We also explore Pippa's own connection with nature, discuss why finding emotion and meaning is just as important as science-led narratives and what lessons Pippa has been taught by the ocean. It's just a really lovely conversation with such an inspirational and hugely talented storyteller and filmmaker and journalist and I really hope that you enjoy it. I highly recommend listening to this outside if you can, maybe with a cup of tea, the breeze on your face and your bare feet in the sand or the grass. Or if that's not available to you, just take some time out wherever you may be and listen to Pippa's stories. Let's dive in to our episode. Hello, Pippa, and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Hi, Isla. Thanks for coming to talk to me. No, thank you so much for having us. We're in your lovely house uh, on, is it the Cape Peninsula that we're on now? So we're actually just outside Cape Point Nature Reserve. Uh-huh, yeah. But we're in the World Heritage Site, which is pretty cool. It's such a stunning, stunning place. Um, and I'm so happy to be here. And I'm so glad that you could take the time to talk to us on the podcast. Of course. I'll always take the time for Save Our Seas. <laughs> I would be in a very different place in my life if it wasn't for Save Our Seas Foundation. We like to start the podcast with the same question for every single guest. And this question is... I know very hard for a lot of people who work in the ocean Um, and I know you must have had a lot of memorable experiences but is there one, is there an experience that stands out for you in particular as special or or memorable? I have had a lot of incredible experiences in in the ocean but I think one that I'd like to talk about was my first real experience with a shark and was long ago, long before I started working for Save Our Seas Foundation, I was diving in Mozambique with my partner at the time, and we were swimming in this huge school of jobfish. Um, it was pretty amazing. I mean, these fish were kind of, it felt like they were a meter long each, these huge big fish, and they were just moving in this giant wall around us. And we were free diving probably at about 14 meters. And at some point, my partner had moved away and this wall of fish opened and on the other side was a big bull shark and he was just like slowly swimming towards me and I remember thinking at the time uh is there something else near me like what is this shark interested in and I looked behind me and looked to my left and I looked to my right and I realized oh no I'm the one he wants to, to know more about <laughs> and it's me <laughs> 
And I remember speaking to uh, people who dived a lot and said, what do you do if you see sharks? And a lot of them had said, well, I just, especially when you're deep, they said, well, I just pull my snorkel out and scream into the water column. Okay. Uh-huh. So, so that's what I did. I took my snorkel and I went, Whoa! And I literally watched the shark go like, <gasps> and fly away in another direction. And, and that was like a real turning point for me. Um, right. Because you suddenly realize that as vulnerable as you feel when you're in the ocean, particularly when you're in a deep, open water, mm-hmm. um, you are also kind of empowered in a strange way. And, mm-hmm. and it also taught me a lot about how animals think. Because yeah. you think that a big, strong shark would be totally fearless. But actually, they're just as cautious and nervous and kind of scared of taking risks as we are. Yeah, absolutely. I've never heard of that uh, strategy before. <laughs> like, thank God someone had told you about that before you actually went, <laughs> went in the water with that shark. It's true. because I would have had to bolt to the surface at some point because I would have run out of breath. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a very surprising experience. I've heard of that for bears before, but yeah, there we have it. If you're ever approached by a shark, just make a loud noise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's the bubbles actually, that yeah. the vibration or all that air coming out of your mouth. But I mean, I wouldn't. It's not necessarily something I'd say to to, to try at home. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't test it out. And also just the idea of that kind of massive shoal of fish just opening, yeah. and the shark just being there. Mm. That's incredible. Yeah, and I've never seen a shoal of fish like that anywhere since, I have to say. And that was in 2010. So it's it's very scary how the world has changed in 13 years. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. But yeah, they've been just incredible just just to see that just in itself when you see like the sheer volume yeah of life that there can be all of life yeah yeah awesome so the ocean obviously is such a big part of your life now but has that has that always been the case i think i've always loved it i grew up in johannesburg which is 100 percent landlocked Mm -hmm. so i've always loved water um and swimming and i've spent a lot of time in our swimming pool at home but um you know and then my grandparents had a house in Simonstown which is kind of where we shot my octopus teacher and where the penguins live Mm -hmm. so normally about once a year we'd come down I don't think I ever snorkeled I don't think I ever really even knew that the kelp forest was called the kelp forest in those days um but I definitely have a a strong connection to this place Mm -hmm. but it was really only when I started diving at university mm-hmm. that I started to understand the ocean and, and, and really explore it. Can you remember your first dive? Outside of a swimming pool? Yes, I can remember my first dive. And it was, I went to Rhodes University uh, in the Eastern Cape. And my first dive was off Port Elizabeth mm-hmm. and the water was filthy. <laughs> and I think we kind of got lost and we should never have gone below 18 meters so at some point we ended up at 24 meters and oh okay mm-hmm. yeah yeah it was a it was a chaotic dive but that's what happens when you swimming around at 18 meters and three meters of visibility but I still love the feeling of being underwater and then when I started to travel and go to places like Thailand and you know there the water is warm and we went to some really beautiful reefs that was kind of pre some of the big coral bleaching events Um, and you could just spend hours and hours in the ocean and even though there's not that much fish life it's crystal clear and the coral is beautiful and 
it just becomes a completely different experience. Yeah, yeah. It's like, un- for me anyway, it was like unlocking a door to a secret world. Yeah. It's so cool that you don't normally get to, because usually all you see is the surface, really, or the waves. Yeah. And then you're actually getting to see what it's like to be... Underwater. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And I think for me, that was particularly startling with the kelp forest. Because you see a lot of coral reefs on TV mm-hmm. as well. When you've grown up coming to a place every year and you've just kind of seen this brown stuff floating on the surface or mm-hmm. washing up on beaches, being eaten by little amphipods, and then suddenly you stick your face underwater and it's like this total magical kingdom and the light is being filtered by the kelp leaves and you just get these rays dancing in front of your eyes and then you start to realize that there's just millions and millions of animals down there and it really is like being able to fly through a forest it's a definitely yeah change something in me and and making a practice of it which I unfortunately don't have as much time to do anymore but there was a time when I literally got into that ocean got into that kelp forest every single day and it really does shift you you start to follow the the rhythms of the ocean in a way that you never knew was possible and you start to notice when there are big swarms of jellyfish being washed in and then when they disappear again and when there are a lot of stingrays and when there are not a lot of stingrays around and where to find octopuses, where to find cuttlefish. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you form that connection. Mm. Um, it's just like for anyone listening who doesn't have access to the sea on their doorstep, it's just like going into the forest every day or, you know, exactly. taking a walk. You're observing the seasons change and you can still see that underwater. Yeah, it's just a massive... Uh, life-changing privilege to have that kind of access to the ocean absolutely where it can just be part of your daily routine Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and you have to remind yourself sometimes because sometimes when you've got it that close to you it does feel it does start to become quote-unquote normal in a way Mm. and you have to remind yourself just how lucky you are to have that and but before you kind of got into, properly got into the world of filmmaking, you actually trained and worked as an investigative journalist? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I studied journalism and specialised in documentary filmmaking and my first proper job outside of university, um, I worked for a TV show called Carte Blanche in South Africa, which mm-hmm. is our premium, like, television investigative journalism show. Mm-hmm. Uh and I quickly discovered that that was not for me because I I just kind of struggled with walking into someone's house and hearing their completely harrowing, heartbreaking story um, and then walking out again and, and never really knowing what happened to them or if your story helped them or made things worse for them. But we did one story which turned a light on inside of me, which was about the SKA telescope. Okay. which is the, the, the square kilometre array, which is this massive radio... Is it called a radio telescope? Anyway, it measures sound waves, I think, as opposed to like an optical telescope where you can see the stars. Okay. Here you're, you're, you're hearing them, basically, and you can go way further. I mean, you can, the, the, this thing, which is now it's going to be shared between Australia and South Africa, they'll be able to go back to beyond the Big Bang. So we went to do the story and they had, at that point, I bought four satellite dishes out in the middle of the Karoo, which is this big desert area. Mm -hmm. And we left Cape Town, 
drove all day, spent the night in a B&B and then drove out the next morning to just the flattest, driest piece of earth I've ever been to. And there were just these huge satellite dishes sitting in the middle of nowhere with sheep walking around them. And then there were these little scattered uh, caravans. And inside these caravans were the most brilliant astrophysicists from all over the world that you've ever met. And when they spoke, their eyes lit up and they spoke about things like every one of us being made of stardust and being able to hear beyond the Big Bang and what a black hole was like. And something inside me just turned up. And I was like, this is what I was supposed to Why didn't I study science? Um, <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was really exciting. You know, and then they turned the, the satellite dishes on and they all moved together and go, whoop, 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 and you really feel like you are just part of something cosmic. So that's when I realized, okay, science journalism is cool. And I traveled for a bit. Then I worked in uh, advertising for a very short time. Okay. Where I learned a lot, but I was not happy, but I learned a lot. And I was sitting at my desk one day and, and a colleague said to me, hey, don't you know about this organization? They're looking for a, a media person. And she showed me this Facebook ad. And that was when I applied for the job at Save Our Seas Foundation. Can you, can you explain to our listeners like what, what you, exactly that you were doing for the Save Our Seas Foundation? So back then, the foundation had gone through a bit of an evolution. Um, Michael Scholl had just become the CEO. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were starting a new media team. And I think Save Our Seas has always had pretty good... There's always been good emphasis on storytelling. But maybe things had just gone through a bit of a lull. And Michael was collaborating with Thomas Peshak. And Tom obviously is very, very good at strategizing media and storytelling and, and very well connected and very experienced. So they came up with a, with a plan. They wanted to start a magazine. And they realized that they had all of these incredible project leaders all over the world and no one was telling those stories. And it is hard for scientists. For starters, it's always hard to tell your own story, Mm. no matter what you are. Um, And then you throw scientific training on top of that. (laughs) And I guess they just needed someone to mediate between kind of the scientific language and experience and a normal consumer of media. So I came in as a media coordinator. Um, and then our team grew really rapidly. Like I was, I think I was there with with Alessandro Bonora for about six months. And he was a designer and an editor. Um, and I was coordinating with all the project leaders and doing the social media. I mean, I remember I started off our Instagram feed back then. And now I think they've got like 200,000 followers, maybe more. Yeah. Uh-huh. And save us easier. Yeah. So we literally started at zero in 2013. Um, and Jade Schultz joined about six months later. Mm-hmm. And she and I had been friends at university. Yeah. So we've got a very old friendship and it's been really special to see someone you've known for so long uh, growing and evolving. And mm-hmm. I've got so much respect for what she has built Save Our Seas Foundation's media into um, and the vision that she's had and the tone that she's kind of created. So that's been really cool to see. But yeah, when I started, I was kind of doing everything Mm -hmm. for those first six months. And then 
Jay took over social media and I was focusing on writing stories for the magazine, making short films. And the most important job was at the beginning of every uh, grant cycle, Mm -hmm. I'd get on Skype in those days with every single new project leader just to kind of form a bit of connection with them and hear what their story was about. And that was a mind-blowing privilege for me because I hadn't studied science and I realized that I wished I had. And it was like this incredible crash course in learning to understand the oceans, Mm -hmm. mostly through the lens of sharks and rays. (laughs) But but there were other... There were, there were other kinds of scientists in there. And even if you're only looking at sharks and rays, to, to, to understand enough about them, you've got to underst- have a pretty broad understanding of the ocean in general. Um, yeah, so that was just four years of meeting phenomenal scientists and traveling to places like the Daros and the Seychelles uh, and traveling to Bimini and the Bahamas and to Florida and just getting exposed to things I never dreamed I'd get exposed to, like incredible experiences in the ocean. Uh, Going to Dallas was a complete revelation and in some ways like the best experience I've ever had and in other other ways the most heartbreaking Mm -hmm. because when when you go somewhere like that and it's it's near pristine, it's not pristine, Mm -hmm. but it is without question the most alive environment I've ever set foot in. It's not just that you can see and hear thousands and thousands of, of, of animals all around you. I remember getting off the plane and feeling completely different in that place. And it, it, it's kind of made me ask questions about how does the human psyche feel in a rich and healthy ecosystem versus how we feel in the world that we're kind of creating. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, I've, I've not had the chance to go yet, but it sounds like such a special place. It's very special. It's, it'll, it'll blow your mind. And then the, th- the downside is when you realize that, that, that how the world should be is full of thousands of birds in the sky and, you know, huge schools of fish and being able to swim over a shallow coral reef and have mantas just swimming along on the edge of it, eating plankton, and you know, go into an atoll and walk through ankle-deep water and have a hundred baby stingrays swimming around your feet. Mm-hmm. When you realize that that is possible and that that's not even as perfect as it should be, it's kind of heartbreaking. I'm interested to know how you got into filmmaking from journalism because I imagine filmmaking is also you have the same issue in that you're getting even more especially with a film like My Octopus Teacher you're getting kind of even more wrapped up in someone's story and the science Um, but yeah how did that how did that come about for you? So I think something started to happen at Save Our Seas Foundation where I started to get a little bit frustrated and demoralized even that we were telling all these stories and working really hard Mm -hmm. and things just didn't seem to be changing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it is very frustrating that when I started Save Our Seas, 100 million sharks were being killed a year Mm -hmm. and now we're up to 200 million. And we've all been working really hard to change that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. 
So I think I started looking at how conservation storytelling was done mm-hmm. and questioning it. And I wanted to, f- I guess I wanted to find a way of getting people in, in interested in nature in the same way that they are interested in other things like true crime, for example. Yeah, there's, an op- there's a huge obsession with true crime at the moment. Yeah. And, and, this, and I think that's because those stories are so well told. You know, and I think it's harder to tell a story about science well. And part of the reason that's hard is because for good storytelling, you have to simplify a lot of things, which is a scientist's worst nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> um, even when I wrote stories for the magazine, I'd like send it to the to the PI. They'd send it to twenty five people that they work with and, and I'd and I'd get my like really well written article. Well I thought it'd been well written back. And it was just like had red lines through everything and everything had become so nuanced that it was kind of uh, meaningless to a normal reader. I suppose. Yeah. So I just became really interested in this idea of like well how can we tell stories about nature that makes people care about nature in the same way that they care about sport, for yeah. example. Football. Football, yeah. Yeah, huge. Exactly. So what what is happening in that kind of storytelling that is not happening in, in stories about conservation? And I, through a mutual colleague who founded a Sea Change Project with Craig Foster, I met Craig. And, and the other thing that was happening is... When you are sitting on Skype with all of these incredible scientists all the time who are working in these beautiful environments and deeply dedicated to the animals that they're working with and deeply connected to those animals, you start feeling like a bit of a voyeur. <laughs> and, and a part of me just kind of wanted my own sense of connection with nature or, or with animals. And I seen Craig speak. He was telling these otherworldly stories about creatures that he was meeting in the forest and he was describing these animals as if they were people and perhaps that's anthropomorphism what i have discovered the more time i spend around people who know animals well and have studied them for a long time and the more time that i've spent with animals is that the more you get to know them the more you do realize that they're like people they have personalities they have personalities they have an emotional world they are afraid of things they're curious about things and you know they 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 do have agendas and those agendas might be very simple but in other species they might be a lot more complex than you ever imagined mm-hmm. so we, we we try not to anthropomorphize but we are human beings so that's really the only level through which we can understand the world mm-hmm. and that's how we feel connected to something right exactly exactly that's how we feel connected to something mm-hmm. so after six months, so I met Craig, uh, he took me diving, my mind was completely blown, and eventually after a year of emails back and forth and conversations with this colleague of ours, eventually it got to the point where he said he, I could go with him again, and he started to mentor me in firstly being able to dive in cold water, which now feels very easy, but at the time was quite a thing to get my head around and you know for, for Craig it, it, it was quite boring to dive with people who you know he had to if you can only go in for 20 minutes he's going in for an hour 
So, so he'd kind of said to me, you know, go do 10, 10, 10 dives by yourself, get used to the cold, take some photographs and then come back. And in the beginning, I could only do 20 minutes and it was freezing and I was miserable. And my jaw would start to ache and I'd bite through my snorkel. And now I look at that and I'm like, oh, that was just ridiculous because now staying in the cold for 20 minutes is very easy. So your body conditions super fast, but it's a huge mental block to get over but once you get over it it is a revelation because you realize there must be so many things in my life that I think I can't do or that I'm afraid of and there's a really good chance that I could just push through yeah cold water like cold water immersion teaches you a lot about other things in life it does um, and just the uh, me and James talking about this the other day because um I'm hopefully going to get to go for a dive with Craig on Saturday, which will be really exciting. Um, But I do have quite a lot of Cold War experience, obviously, growing up in Scotland. But at the same time, I've never... I don't think I've ever dived without a wetsuit before. So it'll be a new experience for me. And swimming? And swimming, cold water swimming, I've done a lot. How how long can you stay in the water? Um, About... Depends on how quickly I'm moving. So if I'm properly swimming, I'm about 30 minutes. Oh, you'll be fine. It won't even be a challenge for you. Hmm. Yeah, we'll see. But it's, yeah, it, yeah I'm, I'm just so excited to, to be able to go in with him as well and learn from him. So I'll probably just stay in longer than I should anyway. Um, but yeah, it's all, when you first get in the water, it's getting past that initial, like, <gasps> and slowing your breathing down and trying to focus on other things other than, yeah. the cold because I find as soon as you start to think I'm cold then that's when your body starts to react and everything everything starts to shut down and you stop noticing things around you yeah. but yeah it's a very powerful tool it's a very powerful yeah. barometer of where your mind is at as well mm-hmm. if you're going through something emotional and you get into very cold water it can often just bring that thing right to the surface or it can just completely calm your nervous system down I found it the most effective tool I've ever had in terms of dealing with anxiety. Yeah, yeah, same. Mm -hmm. It's where I go to get therapy, I think, really. Um, But yeah, so you you met Craig and you were diving with Craig and he was teaching you about cold water. Yeah. Yeah, he was teaching about cold water and yeah, I was just... I've been diving in the kelp forest, swimming since I was a kid and, and diving for probably five years by then, six years more, maybe 10 years, and always going after big cow sharks because there were lots of cow sharks around in those days. And Craig just really opened this big door to a completely different world to me. Mm-hmm. And he was showing me creatures that I didn't know existed. And he understood their lives in ways that I didn't know was possible. Mm-hmm. And he knew when to find them and he knew when they'd be in a certain place and he could look backwards in time from little signs that he was seeing in the environment. And, and that's what tracking is. Tracking is like the ultimate tool for storytelling. Um, and it's a really, really exciting process once you are able to start to read those signs. Mm-hmm. It's just like a, a secret language that is there in front of your eyes all the time. Mm-hmm. And you just start to decode it. So, yeah, that was it was just a very, very exciting time in my life. I'd been making a lot of short films for Save Our Seeds Foundation with with. with zero budgets uh, and, and zero guidance. <laughs> and the foundation has an incredible library of footage. So that was a massive resource. Yeah. But I was working on a film about Bimini in my last few months with the foundation. And 
I think Craig helped me a bit with that. And that was like mind blowing. So I was something like, wow, if you have a proper sound designer work on your project and someone to help you get the color right. And if you just do two or three things to tweak your story and make your message really, really strong, you're dealing with a whole new level of film. And Craig and I worked together very well. And that was clear from the beginning. So it was around, I think it was about February 2017, where I said, I'm going to make this film. And would you like to help me? And then when he sent me the treatment, I remember reading it and I was just crying when I read this thing because there was just something in it that resonated with me really, really deeply. But I think it's what I was saying earlier about it was a story that I felt people might be able to relate to the same way that they can relate to football or true crime because there are certain themes that human beings are very, very driven by and those are themes of belonging and meaning and providing security for our children and all of that was in the story but through this incredible lens of like deep nature immersion and did it always start out as because I think the treatment changed didn't it so was it a story kind of about the wider uh, Craig's connection with the wider ecosystem and then the octopus came into it later was the octopus always was she always a part of it from the beginning she was always a small story so you, you always talk about your small story which is your yeah. your kind of thing that drives the narrative mm-hmm. and then you have all this context around it and we had a lot of context because it feels it feels so huge because it's an entire ecosystem an entire man's life a gigantic library of like 25 hard drives sitting on a desk (laughs) and it's very hard in the beginning to know what's going to fit and what isn't so I imagine for me that would be the hardest bit it is the hardest bit because everything like you said everything feels important to tell like you want to include every single part of it it's always the hardest bit there's always 25 stories that you could tell Um, I just did a film now which was shot over eight years 30 years ago uh, well, it was, it, was, it was filmed over 30 years. I mean, yeah, it's not easy. Your, your editor has such an important role. And I mean, Craig and I were kind of editing together in the beginning. But once we got into the story of the octopus, she was such a magical, captivating creature that the storytelling became stronger and stronger and easier and easier. And then James Reed, my co-director, described this so beautifully once, and I now use it all the time. But in any story, you have all the scaffolding Mm-hmm. that holds it up in the beginning and then as your core narrative becomes stronger and stronger you don't need the scaffolding anymore and you and you start to take it down yeah that is a really good analogy yeah yeah, yeah. um and then there's a lot of other so say like frozen planet or blue planet a lot of them do similar things and that you've got like a you've got a central character and you sort of you do bring people in with its personality or the story and how it's going through life but they also tend to put the animal in the center of threats or you know you you'll hook people in with how much they love the animal and then they'll be like oh no but then its habitat's being torn down but you took quite a different approach with my octopus teacher so there isn't kind of there isn't really like a call to action there no i mean there is a threat you know there's a lot of jeopardy with her relationship with the sharks Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of jeopardy in craig's story as well will this man find meaning (laughs) will he repair his relationship with his son but I think I just, I wanted to, to take a step back in, in, in how we approach stories about nature because it's hard to make people care about conservation when they don't care about nature in the first place. It shouldn't be, but it's quite abstract to say, well, you know, the, every second breath you take comes from the ocean. 
it's such a powerful thing to say, but I think people, we've, we've all heard these things so many times that they've become ab abstractions. And one thing that humans are really interested in is things that make them feel happy and things that give them a sense of purpose and things that, just things that make us feel good. Yeah. We're interested in those things. And for me and for Craig and for you, nature has always been that thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that was just the message that I really wanted to share. And I knew that the minute we put in a bad guy, that's where everyone's attention was going to go. And, and this bigger message about what it means to be a human being surrounded by millions and millions and millions of other species and this miracle of a dot in space that has, keeps all of us going. Exactly, yeah. I think that's why so many people, you know, so many people will be able to resonate with that, whether they've got the sea on their doorstep or not. Like, we all look to nature for that reason. You know, we all look to nature to heal us in times of, of trouble or, you know, we're always looking for that connection to get back connected to nature um, and so and and yet and also the film came out in in 2020 which was without you know mentioning talking too much about the pandemic you know it was obviously a time when a lot of people were struggling or you know they were very disconnected from nature we were all sort of locked indoors um, and, and do you think that kind of influenced how much of an impact the film had definitely. yeah definitely I think I think the film cheered people up at a time where they really were feeling afraid. We were already scared during that time. And then I think people were looking for meaning during that time. And Craig's story provided a lot of meaning. And, and I also think that maybe humans started to notice how uncomfortable it was to be stuck inside, where maybe they'd taken being able to take a walk in the park and look at a tree for granted before. Suddenly you become very aware of how disconnected you feel. Um, and then, of course, another film that I wanted to talk about today because the reason I'm in, in, in Cape Town is because next week we are showing the brand new film, Older Than Trees, which is a film that we have commissioned, the Save Our Seas Foundation have commissioned for our 20th anniversary. And just like my octopus teacher, it had that same feeling for me and that there's that real sort of emotional feel to it. Um, and especially, but rather than see it through Craig's eyes, we're now seeing it through James's eyes, who is, who is our CEO. Um, but was your approach with this film, was it similar to my octopus teacher or, you know, how did it, how did it differ when you were thinking about how to, how to make the film? I think I just wanted to tell a really good story. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't, I wanted to tell the story of the foundation, yeah. but not in a, as a corporate film or as a kind of voiceover. But um, it wasn't easy to find the right story. Mm. And, and there are so many amazing project leaders who we could have, made a film about but James has been with the foundation for so long um, and and honestly that the trajectory of his career exactly matches the trajectory of Save Our Seas and I'd interviewed him years ago at Sharks International in 2014 and he had a really good voice so, so that so I knew that that would be helpful and yeah I remember him telling me the story about he'd started out in the Red Sea and he'd just fallen in love with these silky sharks 
And he couldn't believe that you could go diving somewhere and the water was crystal clear and there were 70 big sharks swimming around you and zipping past you and looking you in the eye and very, very as curious about you as, as you were about them. And uh, James told me the story and I could see how emotional he was when he spoke about these sharks and what happened to them. And I'd seen him speak about Daras. Uh, I'd been with him on Daras. And that was a place that really, you know, had such a big impact on me. Um, and I just felt like, wow, I think we could really use this to tell an emotional story about Save Our Seas Foundation um, and, and something meaningful about the work that you guys have done over the last 20 years. And when I started at Save Our Seas, it was in the year of their 10th anniversary. So that's, that, that's really cool. And I remember we did this kind of infographic in the first episode of the, the magazine saying 10 years of Save Our Seas. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and it was, I mean, because you, you want a 20th anniversary film to celebrate all of the achievements of an organization. So it, it, it took a while to kind of move into this idea where we were just going to tell a powerful story with the incredibly beautiful footage that the foundation has collected from all over the planet and tell a really, really hopeful story about why science is so powerful when it comes to changing the world and protecting precious things like sharks and rays. Mm. James's story just gave me an opportunity to, to put all of that together. We don't even mention that he's CEO in the film, actually. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it was... It was strange because I got the opportunity to see the vision or our vision of the film at Sharks International and I think it was strange for me watching it because obviously I know James, James is my boss but it didn't feel like I was watching him if that makes sense like I felt quite it was like watching a different person because I've never heard him talk like that before and it made me cry made me cry um, sitting in the in the theatre and it made quite a lot of people cry in the room as well because his, his children also feature in it as well, which is so lovely to see. But yeah, but I, I really resonated with what you said earlier about scientists finding it quite hard to express themselves in that way because we're taught so much to be, you know, very objective, have very little emotion in what we're doing, just tell the straight facts. Um, but, you know, do you think it's important that scientists are able to sort of tap into that more emotional side when they are communicating their work? I think it's very important. I think um, emotion is what drives action. We're instinctual creatures. Very, you know, and, and scientists will hate to hear this, but if you ask any neurologist, they will tell you that about 3% of the human brain is kind of driven by conscious thought. Our decision-making processes are largely instinctive and we will often come up with rational reasons to justify why we're doing what we're doing, but that first impetus is coming from some kind of primal need, generally. And that's why being able to convey a message with emotion is so powerful. And one of the most useful phrases that I've ever heard was something that I asked a very, very creative, amazing conservation biologist who runs the aquarium at, in Long Beach in, in Florida, Dr. Peter Kariva, and I asked him exactly the same question you just asked me. Mm-hmm. What is the connection between science and storytelling? How can they work together? And he said, um, well, science tells you what to do. 
but storytelling makes you want to do it. Mm, that's a really, really good phrase. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna have to steal that. That's fine. Just remember to quote him because <laughs> a lot of people have stolen it, and it's Dr. Peter Kariva. Yeah. Credit where credit's due. Yeah. Yeah. It was really helpful and really clever. And so that's the one thing about having a, a great film. And I, I mean, I hope I hope people think it's a good film, but it's having a good story. The other thing's having an amazing team. And I just want to mention, firstly. The Save Our Seas team has been incredibly supportive in terms of providing footage whenever we needed it, shooting more footage when necessary, reviewing every single cut, helping us make decisions, like just absolutely dream collaborators. But then also our creative team, producer Tasman Faslu, he's just like kept everything organized and managed the budget and coordinated with James and kept track of all these balls that are always up in the air. And then we had Brian Little who did the edits and that was an incredibly challenging job because you're dealing with uh, like eight hard drives, terabytes of footage, some footage that was shot in the Red Sea in 2007 <laughs> and then other stuff that was shot in a red, you know, two months ago. Yeah. Uh-huh. And finding ways of using all of that so that it's meaningful and also having some sense of like, have I got the best stuff? Um, you know, we, we had to reconstruct a story that's been playing out over 20 years. Yeah. It's, it's very, very challenging. So Brian did an amazing job with that, an amazing job with kind of using surprising music and creating very, very emotional scenes. And then we had a fine cut editor called Jackie Revere's, who just made everything super, super slick. Mm-hmm. Um, and then working with incredible composer called Sven Faulkner, who actually, we were so lucky that he was available um, and his music is very, very beautiful. And then we got the same colorist who did Octopus Teacher, Carl Struble, um, and the same online editor, Danny Nell. And at the moment, Barry Donnelly, who's been working with Craig forever to make films, is doing all the sound. So just a really cool team like and all the amazing cinematographers who've worked for, with Save Our Seas for so long. And then Craig and Swati, who we, we work together on many, many projects. And it's like a huge privilege to be able to work with them. And they've been the executive producers, so they've helped a lot as well. Okay. Craig actually did the second interview with James uh-huh. while we were on Daras. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really amazing. It feels like... Working with your family, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Save Our Seas does feel, mm-hmm. with, along with Sea Change, and Save Our Seas and Sea Change are working together now, it does just feel like this amazing collaborative familial space. Yeah, I can imagine, but I can also imagine it's quite hard then when you're trying to craft the story, because one thing that you that I read um, about the process of making my Oct- octopus teacher was that you, you didn't interview Craig, because you were so close yes. to him. Yeah, I didn't interview him at the beginning, mm-hmm. and that's if I have I have learned that lesson now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there, there's some filmmakers who never speak to the person before before they sit down for that interview. Really? Yeah. yeah. So that's one technique, but and I guess that's why Craig did the second interview. Actually, mm-hmm. I did the first one, learned the story, um, and you you learn from watching other people interview the same person who you've spoken to. Yeah. Yeah, because also for the from the other way around as well, it might be quite difficult for the interviewee to open up in that way to some. I know that they that they know you and they trust you, but it might be quite difficult. Sometimes it's easier to talk to someone who who's, who's a stranger. It's also easier to tell a story to someone who 
has never heard it before. If, if you feel like you're telling the same story to someone who already knows all the answers, it, it just doesn't come out right. It's a very strange thing. Yeah, it is odd. But I guess that's why people go to therapy, right? Is that that person's just not got any connection to you whatsoever or... Exactly. Yeah, 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 oh, amazing. Yeah, but I'm so I'm so looking forward to the to see the film again. But you know, this is a shock podcast, um, and one question we have a lot of storytellers on and, and filmmakers as well as the scientists, and. I think quite an interesting question for me is because sharks are quite a unique animal in that in some people they evoke a really emotional reaction and other people not so much. They kind of don't really see sharks as this sort of, they see them as kind of cold-blooded killers who just roam around the ocean and just do what do their thing without thinking about it. Um, but for you, how do you think we can create more of a sort of positive or a more emotional connection to sharks specifically i think i think it's already happening yeah i've definitely noticed a difference even in the last couple of years yeah certainly in the last 10 years mm -hmm. if i look at what we needed to say as save our seas foundation 10 years ago um and how careful we have to be about showing shots of a shark with its mouth open and how much debate there was around language about shark attacks and shark interactions. And, and now there does just seem to be a lot more empathy and understanding around sharks. And I think in South Africa, the fact that they've all been chased away by orcas um, <laughs> has, has been ironically quite helpful because everybody realizes, wow, shame, they're scared. Yeah. They're vulnerable. Yeah. They get murdered and their livers get ripped out and they're, you know. I was chatting to some guys on the plane about this. I was sitting in the middle of a row of four people with like four massive six foot four guys. And we were just chatting just before we take off about what they were doing and why we were all going back to Cape Town, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I work with sharks with the Save Our Seas Foundation. And they all went, oh, have you heard about the orca? And then just, we're just asking so many questions about it. So, yeah, it's really captured people's... Uh, oh, imaginations, yeah. Uh huh. It's a proper. That's a that's a true crime story right there. It is. It yeah. is. Yeah. Uh huh. A yeah. true crime thriller. Thriller. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think we need to look at different species of sharks. Sharks are not just great whites. Uh -huh. You get tiny little sharks that fit in the palm of your hand and grow up in eggs and have learned to stop their hearts beating when they sense someone is outside of the egg because they're scared and they feel vulnerable and they don't want to get caught. And I think when you start to tell stories like that, yeah. you can transform people's understandings. Yeah, and I was wondering as well, you know, obviously you said you said earlier that you're not able to, to kind of get in the sea as much as you would like to. Um, just because you're so busy. And I think a lot of people do struggle with that in terms of being connected to nature and that everyone's, you know, there's a hustle and bustle of daily life. And do you have any, you know, tips or, you know, words of advice of how people can stay connected to nature even during those kind of really busy times? I think, and I've got to keep reminding myself that no matter how busy you are, you've always got half an hour in your day to do something that's really good for you. Um, and I think the key is to not make it something that's so ambitious that it's impossible to get to. Mm -hmm. So if the beach is an hour and a half's drive, that's maybe you can do that on a weekend. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a beautiful park 
with a tree and even if you've just got one beautiful tree in your garden even if you've only got 10 minutes to go and spend 10 minutes look at it and sit with it and see what birds are in there and what kinds of insects are flying around it truly does just calm your mind down and in my daily routine um, on days when I don't stop and either go for a dive or a swim, or I live on this beautiful farm and with a beautiful river. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah, and if I can just take half an hour before I start my day in the morning and just walk up that river, mm-hmm. my day every single time is infinitely better than the days where I don't do that because I just start off in a space where I feel kind of connected and calm and like I've given myself the best chance to not have a day of total chaos and anxiety and disorder and yeah filmmaking is, is chaos yeah. generally there's chaos there's pressure there's deadlines things are unpredictable so if you can just control the things that you can <laughs> um it all feels much more manageable and peaceful yeah even if you just go outside in the morning with your cup of coffee and just yeah. sit in the sun or in my case often the rain <laughs> yeah. and just breathe in the fresh air Um, And I just had two last questions. Uh, One's quite a short one, but this one is, was there, so I know the whole story of my octopus teacher is what Craig learned and how he grew from his time underwater. And I was just wondering, is there anything that you've learned from, you know, connecting with the underwater world or especially, you know, here? There's so much that I've learned. I mean, it's completely transformed uh, who I am. You know, uh, and many of the things that I've just been saying around things that you think are totally intimidating, possibly not being as scary as you think. But and I think just like the meaning that can come into your life when you consciously choose to have a connection with something outside of yourself and non-human and the kinds of lessons that come from that. I mean, you know how much people get out of their pets for example, and wild spaces, wild creatures offer something just as profound but completely different in nature. Often we talk about how beating a new person can awaken a different part of yourself and it's very much the same thing um, with the natural world. It, it awakens something in you that you would never have found mm-hmm. in any other interaction. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's such a lovely... Um... That's such a lovely note to leave the podcast on as well because I know there's a lot of people listening who already have, you know, a, a connection to nature, but I do think it's something that we always have to remind ourselves of. Like no matter whether you're a marine scientist or whether you, you know, work with the sea every day, like you always have to remind yourself everyone goes through busy times, everyone goes through times when they kind of lose that connection a little bit and you have to come back to it. Um but we've talked about all of this incredible and very profound stuff and now I'm going to ask you our final question which isn't profound well some people actually some people actually do give this a really a lot of thought and give me very lovely and profound answers but it is just a nice light-hearted question to finish the podcast with uh, and that is if you could be any species of shark ray or skate in the world what would you be a manta ray a manta ray. Yeah. That, that was a really instant answer. Yeah, as well. I love them. <laughs> I just love them. Um, I, I've had really profound experiences with manta rays. They're so big yeah. and so graceful mm-hmm. and so fast 
and so engaging if they choose to be, mm-hmm. if they choose to be. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I think that's what's so magical for me about them when you have this huge intimidating animal choosing to come up to you and flip onto its back and fly underneath you and hold your eye contact for as long as it chooses to do so you truly do feel like you are looking another kind of consciousness right in the face um, and they know that they're doing the same thing back yeah and and they're beautiful and they can live you know 500 meters deep or on the surface so i always that's something i always think about these animals that are living you know we are living in this kind of flat world Uh they're they're living in a 500 meter tall building Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's a crazy thought yeah and they just always seem i I feel like mantas for me are just like the like epitome of freedom like they just look like they're just having the best time all the time yeah 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 and really utilizing their environment yeah yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. They, they are they're just so cool and they can jump and they can fly and and they're really smart. Yeah, most intelligent fish in the sea, I think. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me if you <laughs> when when they look at you, you know. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good answer. Um, and with that, because I know you've got a friend coming around, and I could, I say this every single time, and I'm sure you felt the same about all the scientists that you interviewed. Like, I feel like I could talk to. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, um, but I won't keep you any longer. Um, But thank you. Thank you so, so much for coming onto the podcast. It's been such a joy to talk to you. Thanks for a really wonderful conversation and great questions. The World of Sharks podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was produced and edited by me, Isla Hodgson, Our stunning visuals were created by Jamie Silva. Our lovely logo was made by Nicola Poulos. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. Thank you so much to Pippa for welcoming me into your home and speaking so freely and openly and for taking the time to come on the podcast. And thank you at home for listening. If you like this episode, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating and a review. We love hearing from you and it helps more people to find us and find out about sharks. And who doesn't want that? And if you want a topic covered or you just want to say hi, you can email Isla at SaveOurSeas.com or connect with us on social media. We are at SaveOurSeas on Twitter and at SaveOurSeas Foundation on Instagram. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time.